World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A scantily clad woman relaxes in a hot tub. A sense of mortal peril builds. She's about to be pounced upon by Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. We take a look at the kind of horror and delights that await as the classics go out of copyright. And usually, mixing deadly weapons in beer is a bad idea. But competitive axe throwers do it all the time. Our correspondent heads to Wisconsin to investigate one of America's most heavily bearded pastimes. First up, though. During the Cold War, America and the Soviet Union engaged in an unprecedented arms race. Tens of thousands of nuclear warheads were produced. Nuclear explosions are caused by weapons such as H-bombs or atom bombs. From the 1950s through the 80s, TV ads warned of a day of reckoning. The heat and blast is so severe that it can kill and can destroy buildings for up to five miles from the explosion. But despite some close calls, doomsday never came. Tentative steps toward arms control began after the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. But it was not until the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War that big cuts in nuclear stockpiles were made. In 1994, then-President Bill Clinton convinced a post-Soviet Ukraine to eliminate Soviet nuclear weapons in its territory in exchange for security assurances from both America and Russia. An agreement committing Ukraine to eliminate 176 intercontinental ballistic missiles and some 1,500 nuclear warheads targeted at the United States. But that proved worthless in preventing Russian aggression. Today, in the shadow of war in modern-day Ukraine, fears of a nuclear arms race have rekindled, this time with a third great power. The world is entering a new nuclear age for many reasons. Anton LaGuardia is our diplomatic correspondent. One is that there's a new generation of weapons coming in, hypersonic missiles, space and cyber weapons, and so on, that make the old balance more unsteady. The second factor is that arms control agreements, which have limited the number of nukes, are fraying, and the last major agreement between America and Russia expires in early 2026. And the third reason is that China is expanding its nuclear arsenal very quickly, going from a few hundred warheads to maybe 1,500 by 2035. So the United States will face a world in which it's not only deterring one antagonist, 
but possibly two at the same time. And that is a world we haven't seen before. We've seen a Cold War, but we haven't seen this kind of complex three-way deterrence game. And tell us why a three-way deterrence game is more complex than two. Well, you have to calculate the thinking and actions of not one, but two possible enemies. And you have to confront the possibility that they may gang up. So Russia and China declared that their friendship has no limits. Nobody quite knows what that means, but we've seen them conduct, for example, joint bomber patrols. So if you're the United States, you have to say, what if they join up together? It increases the pressure to increase your arsenal in order to confront both. But then the danger is that each of the others will say, wait a minute, we can't have the United States with a much bigger arsenal. We need to build up too. So you start to create the dynamics of an arms race. So the entry of that third nuclear superpower of China complicates matters. But how significant is China's nuclear arsenal right now? It is growing fast, but it's still relatively modest. The latest Pentagon report on China's military power says it has grown to 400 nuclear warheads, and they project it growing very rapidly to 1,500 by 2035. That is a sort of size of the strategic nuclear weapons deployed by the US and Russia. Now, those two countries have lots more weapons in storage, but it starts to get into the sort of size where they look like a peer competitor and not just a, quote, lesser case, unquote, that the Americans have reckoned on until now when they think about North Korea or Pakistan or other countries. So how does that arsenal size compare to America's and Russia's? Well, America's and Russia have about 3,500 in the case of the U.S., 4,500 in the case of Russia. The long-range weapons are capped at about 1,500. And then a lot of the rest is either weapons in storage or non-strategic weapons, that's short-range weapons. And the U.S. have not many of those, and the Russians have lots of them. So in the context of the war in Ukraine, for example, the thing that people worry about is the possibility that the Russians would use a tactical nuke in Ukraine, which, by the way, is also a worry in the context of Taiwan, where the Americans worry that the Chinese might use a tactical nuclear weapon if it came to a war between America and China. And some Chinese scholars think America might use a tactical nuclear weapon if they felt that in the conventional war they were about to be defeated. Anton, you mentioned earlier that there's an agreement between the United States and Russia. It expires in 2026. What are the chances that China can be persuaded through a similar sort of agreement to slow or reduce the size of its arsenal? The Americans Russia have a long history of talking about their nuclear weapons, really since shortly after 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis, when they stared over the brink of a nuclear war and pulled back and decided that was way too dangerous. They know each other well, and that in turn led to a series of arms control agreements that eventually cut down the stockpiles. The Chinese have none of that history with the United States and do not talk about arms limitations to them. They rhetorically say, we will talk about this when you, America and Russia, come down to Chinese levels of armaments. But in any case, they seem to dislike the intrusiveness of the verification systems that are in place for America and Russia to check each other's nuclear stockpiles. So 
the idea that they can join the process seems far off. The Trump administration tried and failed. The Biden administration seems to hope that they can do two parallel processes, talking to the Russians about their weapons and talking to the Chinese about their weapons. But there's very little sign of progress on the Chinese side. So how are arms control talks between the United States and Russia going these days? Badly. The two sides have been engaged in what they call the strategic dialogue, which is talking about what would follow on from New START, which is the name of the treaty currently in force. But that process was interrupted by the Ukraine war. And both sides have at various times said, we can't talk about this until the war in Ukraine is settled. The good news is that they are still abiding by the terms of the agreement. So they're still sending each other notifications every week or even every day about changes in stockpiles, weapons coming in out of maintenance. But they have not, since the start of the COVID pandemic, had on-site inspections. And a meeting to try and resume on-site inspections that was due to take place in Egypt at the end of November was cancelled with the Russians saying, we can't talk to you about this while you are arming our enemies. So really, there's very little prospect of a serious dialogue resuming before the Ukraine war is over. So time is very short to reach a new agreement. They could simply agree to extend the current rules and agree to abide by them voluntarily. But that creates legal problems about whether your inspectors have legal cover and so on. And I think it's also unsustainable politically if there's no other agreement in sight. So Anton, is the world just doomed to reckon with this three-way arms race for the foreseeable future? That is a risk that confronts the world. Russia is being aggressive in Ukraine and threatening nuclear weapons. China is building up fast militarily, and there's lots of fear that war will break out in Taiwan. Nuclear weapons are in part a political signal, and I think the politics of the great power contest will tend to push America towards stocking up more nuclear weapons. It must be said that the Biden administration is adamant that it doesn't want a nuclear arms race, but Mr. Biden may not be in power after 2024, and I think there are lots of voices on both sides of the House in the U.S. that think America probably needs to do more and rearm. All right, Anton, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Something is wrong with Winnie the Pooh, and trouble is afoot in the Hundred Acre Wood. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's technology and media editor. Christopher Robin returns to his childhood stomping ground, but instead of the magical, friendly world he was used to, he's greeted by a nightmare. Eeyore is dead, 
Piglet has grown into a snorting wild hog, and Pooh emerges wielding a sledgehammer. Pooh and Piglet, now feral, viciously rampage together, taking down anyone in their path. To be friends, why are you doing this to me? I would have never left that Such is the twisted tale of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, a low-budget slasher film due to come out in February. It's hard to imagine that A.A. Milne, who created Pooh in 1926, would have approved of the film, but no approval from his estate was needed. That's because in January 2022, the copyright on Winnie the Pooh expired in America and the work entered the public domain. Since then, Pooh Bear has also been featured in a mobile phone advertisement. The video ad, which pokes fun at the fact that the world's favourite bear is now in the public domain, is a short story read aloud by the actor Ryan Reynolds. But instead of Winnie the Pooh, this story involves Winnie the Scrooge, who complains that his mobile bill is too high. Like anyone with a big wireless plan, Winnie the Scrooge just wants to keep some of his sweet, sweet money. But his money jar gets emptier and emptier with every monthly bill. So, I told Christopher Robin that anyone can get three free... And if you think that's bizarre, there's probably more where that came from. Every year, a new hall of creative work leaves copyright and enters the public domain, where it becomes free for anyone to adapt and exploit. In America, where copyright for older works is usually 95 years, recent entries to the public domain include books like Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises and F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. And up until now, many of the things slipping into public domain had been literature or classical pieces of music. But a new era is now dawning. The copyright limits for works created in the late 1920s are starting to expire. And as a result, the public domain is starting to receive not only works of literature, art and music, but film and video too. Hollywood's intellectual property, some of it still wildly valuable, is increasingly up for grabs. In January, the jazz singer, one of the first successful talkies, will go out of copyright. You like that, Mama? I'm glad of it. I'd rather please you than anybody I know of. Touch your eyes, Mama. Warner Brothers, which released the film in 1927, is unlikely to worry too much about losing the rights to what is today a historical curiosity. But a year later, there's something that Hollywood executives are very much concerned about. That's when Steamboat Willie, the first film featuring Mickey Mouse, who sits at the centre of Disney's $5 billion merchandise business, will be there for the taking. and the potential woes only begin there. In the 2030s, Disney films including Snow White, Fantasia and Dumbo will all slip out of copyright. Jumbo? You mean Dumbo? <laughs> so will some comic book heroes like Superman and Batman, whose films are among the most successful performers at the modern box office. The latest Batman movie took more than $770 million at the box office. Warner has two sequels planned. Yet from 2035, anyone will have the right to make one. If this continues, it won't be long before you've nothing left. For Hollywood, 95 years may feel all too fleeting, but copyright terms used to be much shorter. The first modern copyright law in the English-speaking world, the Statute of Anne, published in 1710, gave rights holders in England up to 28 years ownership of their work. America followed suit with its first federal copyright law in 1790, before extending the term to 42 years in 1831, then to 56 years in 1909. 
Then, just as Hollywood's treasures were about to become public property in the 1970s, Congress stepped in to lengthen the term again to 75 years. In 1998, as Doomsday approached once more, Congress intervened again and passed a law mockingly known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, which extended the copyright term to 95 years. Many expected a further extension, but none has materialized. For that, we probably have the internet to thank. That place of memes and media has turned voters into copyright liberals. In the 1990s, the subject of copyright was of interest mainly to educators, historians, and librarians. But with the advent of the internet, people saw how easily information could be copied. Legal troubles over copyright infringement aren't slowing down Napster. The song-swapping company is now in the top 50 list of most visited sites on the web, and spin-offs are on the way. They also saw how copyright rules stopped their fun and curtailed their ability to share music or images as they please. A federal court ruled Monday Napster must stop allowing music fans to swap copyrighted material. The internet also changed the balance of lobbying power. Publishers, record labels and film studios had always pushed for lengthy copyright terms, and no commercial interest had reason to push hard against them. But the arrival of companies such as Google and YouTube and Facebook changed all that. After all, they make their money not by owning content, but by sharing other people's content. Google fought and won legal battles over its use of copyrighted pictures in its image search. Record labels sued YouTube for hosting clips featuring their music before the labels decided it made more sense to settle. As valuable properties slip towards the public domain, film studios are doing their best to shore up their legal defences. One comfort to Hollywood is that more recent, better-known versions of their characters are still off-limits. Steamboat Willie's Mickey is black and white and doesn't wear white gloves. The modern-looking Mickey Mouse for now is still protected. And the Winnie the Pooh now in the public domain is the version drawn by E.H. Shepard in 1926, not the red t-shirted, bare-bottomed creation that Disney popularised in 1966. I would be quite lost without you. Who would I call? As the copyright deadline approaches, Hollywood is preparing an alternative defence. Lawyers for studios such as Disney are getting ready to make the case that characters like Mickey Mouse are not just literary works, but logos. Brands and emblems fall under trademark law, which exists to help consumers identify products as originating from a particular company. And while copyright eventually expires, trademarks can last forever. Disney holds Mickey Mouse trademarks for a wide range of commercial uses and might argue that his appearance on a T-shirt, say, would fool consumers into thinking the apparel was a Disney product. But trademark lawyers say this argument only goes so far. One told me that from 2024, a company will be within its rights to use a frame from Steamboat Willie on a T-shirt, and the vendor would be allowed to use the words Mickey Mouse to describe such a product as well. But anyone selling Mickey merchandise can expect some pushback. And even if you're within the law, a legal battle with a company like Disney is going to be expensive, whatever the outcome. But as copyrights near their sell-by dates, Hollywood is getting ready not just with their lawyers, they're also wringing value out of properties like Batman while they still can, while also building up spin-offs whose copyright will last longer. The powerful defenders of long copyright terms argue that they encourage creativity by forcing artists to make original content rather than simply rehashing that of others. Yet ironically, probably no industry has demonstrated better than Hollywood how reimagining an old work is an art in itself. Disney raided the back catalogues of public domain writers like Hans Christian Andersen for material that its animators turned into original films such as The Little Mermaid and Frozen. 
It drew on Arabian folk tales for Aladdin. And Polynesian mythology for Moana. And since acquiring Marvel, it has taken tired comic book heroes from the 1960s and turned them into the most popular movies of the 21st century. It took us a while to get here, but the beginning of this new wave of copyright expirations should be exciting. The shifting of Hollywood's cultural treasure into the public domain promises to spark much more creation and recreation. Artists will take old ideas and characters in entirely new directions. Some will be profoundly silly or profane, like the new Winnie the Pooh slasher film. But other works will no doubt elevate long-known stories and characters in new and illuminating ways. We're getting ready to start. The judges are getting their, their pads and scoring sheets ready. The throwers had a warm-up session at 8 this morning. It was a very chilly morning uh, so far in Appleton. 18 degrees. An army of athletes, most of them bearded, descended on a Wisconsin city in December with an axe to grind, or at least to throw. They're part of a growing movement of axe throwing. While some of it is competitive, some are in it for a bit of fun. But no matter the degree of competition, there is beer. Axe throwing is a bit like darts, but then with an axe and a slightly bigger target. And you essentially get points based on where you land the axe in the target. Sasha Nauda is The Economist's social affairs editor. And it's done by a growing group of people here in America. So all told, how big is the axe throwing business? So there's two bits. One is the business where people like you and me might on a Friday night with some friends go to an axe-throwing venue or a bar or, say, a bachelor party or a birthday party or whatever. That's probably what brings in most of the revenue, so the so-called recreational throwers. That accounts for the bulk of the around 200 or so million dollars of annual revenue. But the heart of the sport are the axe-throwing leagues, and these are people who take it much more seriously. They throw every week, kind of like bowling leagues or other sports leagues. And that's a community of about 20,000 people in the States. The axe-throwing league, how serious are those guys? The founders are very ambitious about making the sport more international and even eventually reaching the Olympics. Um, as one of them pointed out to me, hey, if curling can be an Olympic sport, surely this can be as well. For the first time ever on national TV and the ESPN networks, it's the World Axe-Throwing Championship. The World Cup for axe throwing, which I was lucky to attend. Some of these guys take their sport very, very seriously. Many of them were reporting that, particularly during COVID, they would practice four or five hours a day. I guess like in any sport, you have that share of elite athletes, if you will, who take it extremely serious. But the charm of the sport, in my opinion, is really that most people who are playing are very clear that they're doing it for the social side of things. It's a very supportive community. It's a surprisingly gentle sport uh, with an awful lot of camaraderie that the leagues and that particularly their local clubs, or as they call them, their local house, will bring them. Tell us more about that. What's the Axe-Throwing community like? People have clearly come from different walks of life, often not with a particular interest in axe-throwing when they started, but just looking for some sort of a, 
an institution that would bring them friendship and a place to go. I think it's not a coincidence that it's primarily men who are responding well to this. Men tend to form friendships compared to women doing an activity. So the comparison with bowling isn't a bad one. It gives them something to do while gradually sort of building trust, building friendships. And it's a a very supportive community. So when I was at this World Cup, yes, there were star athletes, but most people were there to see each other, to catch up, have a beer. There was a lot of checking in with people's... There's a lot of talk about how people's health, how their mental health is doing. There's an initiative called Throwing It Forward, which is where they fundraise to help any axe throwers in need. And that can really be anything, right? That can be health problems. Uh, There was a a guy who told me that the community had come together uh, when he needed a pacemaker, which he couldn't afford, and they'd organised a charity event for him. And that was quite typical. So it's much more than just a bunch of blokes throwing sharp stuff. On a small scale, it maybe perhaps is replacing, you know, some of the older institutions. Once upon a time, people would have this kind of support from, say, their church or their religious institution. And a lot of the things that people described are quite similar to that sort of support network. So it sounds as though the community is mostly male. First of all, is that assumption correct? And if it is, are there efforts to expand the axe-throwing community, the axe-throwing appeal beyond just men? Yes, that assumption is correct for league. I should quickly say that several venue owners mentioned that actually women are often the prime customer for booking parties with them, particularly divorce parties where apparently the picture of the ex is taped to the target and then you um, let them loose, in the words of the uh, axe venue holder that I spoke to. Um, But yes, on the more competitive side in leagues, that's definitely mostly male. There are huge efforts actually to bring in a more diverse community, bringing in more women, bringing in more younger people. There's no lower age limit, so they're very keen to bring in more kids and more minorities. And it's worth mentioning that this is a mixed gender sport. There's not a male and a female league. And lots of people in the sport are keen to emphasise that and keen to emphasise the inclusive nature of the sport. All right. Well, I've been cooped up in my basement for 10 days and I have a beard. So I'm ready to throw an axe. (laughs) Thank you so much for stopping by, Sasha. (laughs) I think you'd be the the perfect thrower. Uh, Lovely to see you, John. Take care. (laughs) That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.